This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The movement of Christianity, or whatever you're talking about, democracy or art or whatever it is, you refuse to allow it to remain open to the future, and you freeze it. It becomes like a frozen waterfall, you know, a freeze frame, a pause in a video stream. And you say, that's the absolute unchanging essence. <laughs> well, it's not. It's just the freeze frame. Kill the The Deconstructionist Podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio. Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast, Twitter at Deconstructcast, and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has benefited you in any way, or if you have connected with it, or it's resonated somewhere with you, please consider making a donation. Even the smallest donations go to help John and I maintain healthy relationships with our wives and keeps their blood pressure at a healthy level. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. We are your hosts, John Williamson and Adam Narlock. I'm so glad that our Reconstruction episode aired. We kind of tried to plan this out, but like we didn't really realize that Caputo was going to be after the Reconstruction episode, which I think he would actually appreciate. I think, yeah, I think it's perfect. So who do we got this week? 
So we've got John D. Caputo. Jack. He goes Jackie, by Jack. Yeah. Jackie boy. He is, he is like the godfather oh my gosh. of philosophy. When we started this thing on Twitter, as soon as like certain people latched onto that like handle that we chose, that deconstructionist's handle, they were like, do you know Caputo? Are you going to get Caputo? Could you get Caputo? Have you read Caputo? Caputo, 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 Caputo. And it was like, I mean, I hated to be like, I've read a little, like, I know who he is, but then, like, of course, I had to get into it, and it's like, whoa. Dude, and, and, and for those of you out there listening who are, you know, huge fans as we are of, of our good friend Peter Rollins, like, he was, Caputo was hugely influential. I, w- I mean, Rollins calls him his mentor. Yeah. All the time. So, of course, we had to get him. They're still doing events together. Oh, man. And then we have another, oh, I can't talk about that yet, can I? I don't know where you're going with this. <laughs> the the the, uh, the bonus the the PNP with P. Oh yeah, we can't talk about that. It's coming soon though. We have a we have an Easter egg. Yeah, we do. Coming in the dead of summer. Mm. You guys are gonna enjoy that one. Oh my gosh. Okay. This next month is going to be killer. Let's so. talk about Jack. <laughs> All right. Who is this guy? Who is John D. Caputo? So he is just this brilliant philosopher um, who also specializes in hermeneutics and uh, theology and really is just hugely influenced by Jacques Derrida. Mm. Um, and, so are and, we. Yeah, absolutely. So he was perfect. Oh. So he, he really was the perfect guy to have on to really break down what is deconstruction. Wouldn't you say he's like the next perfect? And I don't mean to like subordinate him at all because he stands on his own. But if like we could have gotten Jacques Derrida, that would be great. But like we couldn't because he's dead, right? So Jack Caputo, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. The guy is just an absolute brilliant, brilliant guy, and uh, um, took some time out of his busy schedule to uh, to talk with us. And and I think one of the things that we tried to get across in last week's episode um, is just that reconstruction is built into deconstruction mm. and and he really just nails that oh so uh yeah i think you guys are gonna love him he's got a phd in philosophy um he's been he's been a uh, college professor uh for for quite some time mm. at both villanova university and syracuse university um just a brilliant guy and so gracious with his time one of the things that i love about the fact that we got jack caputo is you know that I have a huge crush on Karen Armstrong. Yeah, you do. And in her book, The Case for God, at the very end in her chapter on the death of God, she talks about Caputo as this pioneer in theology after the death of God. So if you're curious at all about what it means after these philosophers like Nietzsche and you know Camus and Sartre and all these people that just completely lambasted belief in God and made way for the new atheism. Caputo and his idea of deconstruction as an affirmative of mystery and, a, and an affirmative of that which keeps just coming in. You guys are going to love this episode. And with that, we can do nothing else but let you listen to this fabulous interview. So, John, you got anything else? No. Without further ado. Jack freaking me If I were to step outside my door And when Cause it would surely happen Discovering all that land and sea And no one knows but me And I 
right. Well, uh, Dr. Caputo, or as you like to be called, uh, Jack Caputo, welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. We are delighted to have you here with us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, we would love to just start. I'm sure a lot of people, um, a lot of our listeners aren't academics, um, you know, haven't been trained in the academy and in the ways of theology and philosophy, but they're all interested, curious, uh, whether they're outside uh, a professing faith and they're just spiritually curious and and looking to consume lots and lots of different perspectives. You would be a great one for all of them to read. Um, But then us inside the church who are going through this kind of crisis of faith, kind of weird period, uh, we also think that your work would be just wonderful for people to get acquainted with. So I was wondering if just by way of introduction, I always like it when the guests introduce themselves rather than John and I doing it because you guys obviously know yourselves quite a bit better than we do. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you came to be um, doing the work that you're doing and, and that are now you're now sort of famous for? Uh, yeah, well, at this moment, I'm retired, and I spent uh, my life, uh, for the most part, in uh, a philosophy department at Villanova University. And um, the last uh, seven years, I took an early retirement from Villanova to uh, teach at Syracuse University in the religion department. And because my real interest uh, in the philosophy department was the philosophy of religion, so that gave me a chance to work with students who were interested in getting a PhD in religion, but uh, were interested in the philosophy of religion, and that proved to be quite uh, quite quite a good decision. It was a, a lot of fun. I, I guess my real interest in all of this came from growing up in. Um, a, before the Second Vatican Council as a Roman Catholic and entering a Catholic religious order and, um, you know, encountering religion uh, in a uh, deadly serious way, you know, with the vows of poverty and chastity and obedience. And in that context, uh, studying philosophy, learning about philosophy and uh, particularly in the Catholic tradition, where theology is uh, very deeply uh, saturated by the- by philosophy, so I, you know, from the very get go, from, from the time I was eighteen years old, I was uh, deeply caught up in questions of uh, theology and of philosophical theology, mm. and. Uh, then after I left uh, the religious life, I was in uh, religious religious order for four years. Uh, after that, uh, and I when I, I went and got my PhD in philosophy, and then you know I expanded my horizons and I started to uh, get interested in uh, a, a broader conception of philosophy outside of the Catholic tradition. And I first I found Heidegger. I mean Heidegger, hmm. uh, the greatest great great German philosopher who besmirched his name by getting involved with National Socialism. Yeah, yeah. Um, he you know he he deserves uh, all the criticism he gets for his completely odious politics. But uh, at the same time, he's you know <laughs> he was a great philosopher who said some 
tremendously important things. And he, at the time when I was studying him, I didn't know anything about all that stuff, and or I or I'd only vaguely heard about it. Mm. And I was just uh, uh, emancipated by him. You know, he just got me out of wow. the, the Catholic world that I lived in and gave me a much broader and deeper. Uh, appreciation for the history of philosophy and uh, the sweep of philosophical questioning, and you know, he 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 just emancipated me. And then, wow! Once I did that, once I got on Heidegger, then I got into continental philosophy generally. So all these names you hear about, uh, I mean, first of all, years ago when I was a student, existentialism, Jean-Paul Sartre. And those guys, they Camus and Timon de Beauvoir, <laughs> and those people, they were the, the rage when I was a, a student. Sure. And they were, they were sexy writers. I mean, they were really terrific. <laughs> yeah. Engaging. Wonderful stuff. And when I first started teaching, I used to teach a lot of that stuff. Because if you can't teach existentialism, then you just can't teach at all. That's <laughs> <laughs> so great stuff. Yeah. And um, so I got fell in love with what you call continental European philosophy, French and German philosophy, and um, have ever since been working from the point of view of continental philosophy with the questions of religion. I mean, they were you know I was always one way or another concerned with religion. My earliest book, very first book I ever wrote, was about Heidegger and uh, Meister Eckhart, the great German mystic. Oh, yeah. Whom Heidegger was interested in, and it was fascinating to me. And um, then finally, with a, uh, I think sort of my, my, my journey sort of got, came into focus when I discovered Derrida and deconstruction, mm. and then that was the, the vocabulary and the framework that made the most sense to me. And w- once I found that, then uh, I, you know, I, I thought, well, that's it. That's this is what I've been looking for. This is, <laughs> this is the way I can. It, not so much because it was a body of doctrines or teachings, but be- because it was a way of thinking that um, I appreciated, and, and it made it helped me make sense of religion insofar as I can make lay claim to having made sense of religion. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, you just took us to our really our first question. Let's talk a little bit about that. So, Derrida. Um, most of our audiences, you know, just barely familiar, just because we throw his name around, you know, here and there, and we, we've we've diverted from the uh, the Derrida definition of deconstruction. But in, in a lot of ways, it seems like you did also. Would you talk a little bit about how Derrida's what what you said just now? It's not so much his doctrines, but his the way he looked at it, and how that formulated your idea of of deconstruction. And talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we, I think one way, the, the way I tend to put it nowadays is, is this. Derrida is a philosopher who thinks that the world we live in, the the, the, the set of meanings, the, pra- the beliefs and practices that we have uh, accumulated are contingent. They're revisable. They're reformable. They're uh. You know, they have been constructed in time and history and circumstance. And they didn't drop from the sky. 
Interesting. Yeah, they, were, they were laboriously constructed in history. And so they are, uh, the way I like to put it, relatively stable unities. You know, they are relatively stable constructions. If they weren't relatively stable, the world would just come apart on us and nothing. You'd have to reinvent the world every time you got up in the morning. You'd have to right, reinvent right. The, the wheel, you know. But on the other hand, since they're um, only relatively stable, that means they're relatively unstable. Right. So, and then in his language, that means these constructions are deconstructable. Huh. They they can be um, they can come unglued. Uh, they don't hang together. Uh, in this absolutely tight knot that can't be loosened, they're 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 revisable, reformable, reconstructable, reconstitutable, and um, then that's where things get interesting because his critics say he doesn't believe anything. You know, he thinks that anything goes. He thinks that whatever people say, right. his answer is, well, we know it's a contingent belief. It was constructed in space and time. And who, why do we have to believe it? We don't have to believe anything. We can believe whatever we want. Right. And that's not what he means. You know, he means, first of all, these relatively stable constructions are important and they're our inheritance. We've, We've we've inherited words like democracy, say, uh, and he says this is not trivial. So this this word democracy is, is very important, but it's not a god. It didn't drop from the sky. It was built in space and time by human beings who were trying to hammer out a way to be, and so it's. Uh, it's uh, it's not a pure essence, you know. It's not a necessary being. It's it's a construction, and that means on the one that means it can be re- revised. And you may screw it up when you revise it. You may ruin what was accomplished when you when you when you play with it. So it's dangerous. Wow, business to to mess with things. But if if on the other hand. You don't, you know, it's even more dangerous if you, if you let this mm. thing free, freeze in place. It may be dangerous to, to reconstruct things, but it's even more dangerous not to. Man. Because then they'll become wow. monsters. They'll, they'll freeze over on you. So, wow. so, so then later on in his work, and I think it was partly under the press of his critics, he started talking about something undeconstructable. You say, well, what in heaven's name could that be? Because he's just got done saying everything that we had to deal with was constructed in space right. and time. So what right. could be undeconstructible? Right. It sounds like you know, like like this Greek philosopher Plato who talked about the eternal essences sort of in the sky. Right. Is, is that what is that what he means? No, no, no. That's not what he means. Um, he means. He means words like democracy or justice or hospitality or forgiveness or gift. Or there's a long list of things that he's analyzed. Um, these words have, they make promises that aren't kept. So we inherit a word like democracy. And there's a promise in that word. There's something that we hear that doesn't exist. It's not here yet. It's not realized. It's, it's, uh, 
it's it's more like a call which is calling for to be made real, but it's not real. It's it's a hope, it's an expectation, it's a dream. In religion, you might say it's a prayer. It, it's it's it, and so he calls this the democracy to come. Hmm. And he says the democracy to come. Uh, he says democracy in itself, if it exists, if it exists. And it's the if that makes all the difference because, right. of course, it does not. It never exists. It's always to come. calling us. So remember now that he's Jewish, and so now all of this is starting to sound a little bit like the Messiah. It's got a kind of messianic quality. Yeah, and absolutely. Messianic justice. Only this Messiah never shows up. Never shows up. It's always to come. It's always ahead. So it's the very structure of the future, which is unrealized, but which we're trying to realize. We want to realize. We're, we 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 hope for it. We love it. We desire it with a desire beyond desire and things like that. So so when he said that, then he made it clear that deconstruction is is not in any way, shape, or form some kind of anything goes. Uh, nihilism, you know, some kind of pure libertarian, do what you want. It's always, what makes things deconstructible is that they never meet the demands or the expectations of the undeconstructible. So what makes democracy uh, deconstructible is that it's never the democracy to come. So he's not saying anything goes, he's saying, we're never satisfied. This is, this is, these democracies around us now are not the democracy of which we dream. So the the undeconstructible shines a white light on the present, you know, the constructions of the present, and shows them in their, shows their warts, you know, it shows their defects, uh, all, all of their short, shortcomings. <clears throat> and it, uh, so it sets in, no, so to deconstruct something is not to, to break it down or destroy it, it's to expose it to its future. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's good. Wow. So I have a question, uh, you know, as a lay person and, you know, a lot of lay people listening right now, what you're, sound, what, you're, what you're saying sounds like the concept that we would throw around in common conversation of just like, you know, the, the ideal or just, you know, the idealist thing. You know, it's like, you know, we never quite get there, but we know that there's something pulling us towards progress. Okay. Now, that's right. That's the first thing you should say. But then there's a qualification to to introduce here, and that is Derrida is not uh, the the philosophers use this expression essentialism. Right. Derrida is not an essentialist. So he doesn't think that there's a pure essence of justice or democracy or whatever we're talking about, art, you know, whatever it is. He doesn't think there's a pure essence of that thing out there that we're trying to get to. Right. He thinks that what's ahead has a, a kind of radical non-knowability, so that it might be that the democracy to come, we won't even call it democracy, you know, we won't, our horizons will have been so altered that this word will have become obsolete, 
and we'll be thinking in, in, in other terms. So there's no ideal to approximate empirically. There's a, it's a much riskier business than that. It's mm. a much more open-ended business than that. What we know is that something is being promised to us. And if you say, well, what? And his answer is, I don't know. Wow. Because is, is that because as soon as you say you have an ideal, you almost have like a tyrannical idea that, you know, somebody has to say they understand? Yeah, someone, that's right. Someone would be hardwired to this ideal essence and they'd be able to say, well, this is not it and this is not it because I know what it is. Right. No, there it is. It's, uh, I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a mystery to it. Sure. Absolutely. It's got a mysterious... That's why it all sort of looks like negative theology. You know, it looks like uh, mysticism. And it's got certain things in common with that, except, you know, he's not talking about God. He's talking about... He's talking about history. He's talking about the future. He's talking about Europe and democracies and... Right. You know, he's talking about real earthly time-bound things. I mean, he, he is, from the point of view of a local rabbi or pastor, he's an atheist. Um, so he's not a mystic in any literal sense, but he, he likes right. the, the, the sort of the, the discursive resources, the tropes of mysticism, or the way the mystics speak. Because the mystics have a way of saying something and then unsaying it. Yes. Yeah. You know, and that's the way he wants to talk about democracy. Man. Because he doesn't want to turn it into an essence or an ideal that we are approaching, because that would be Plato. See, that would be the philosopher king who knows the essence. Right. And uh, Derrida's thing is, we, oh, uh, it's too bad we don't have anybody like that. <laughs> Where we live in space and time, and all we have are constructions. Man. Now, so then you do the same. But I did, so when I read all that, I thought, aha, uh huh. This is this is the way to think about religion. It's exactly what religion is. Another one of these constructions. And so there's something undeconstructable in religion, but but all the religions we have around us are constructions. Right. And so, what's that? You know. Well, and then even he started talking like that. At one point, he started talking about religion without religion, meaning this thing that's going on in religion that no that no existing religion can get its head around, or can uh, ever uh, uh, claim exclusive rights to knowing. So then you start getting a way to think about faith. It's much more interesting. It's almost starting to sound like uh, Bonhoeffer when he was, you know, writing from jail and talking about religionless Christianity. Exactly. And, and nobody really knows what he was, what he meant, because he never got the the chance to express it because he was executed by the Nazis. But there's something, yeah. there's something very similar that sounds right, right there. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a fellow named John Skinner who, if you ever noticed online, there's a thing called uh, New Monasticism. I don't know if you've ever noticed new monasticism. John Skinner is an Anglican priest who runs a thing called new monasticism, which is uh, an expression from Bonhoeffer, meaning a monasticism of this world, of people who live in the world and work uh, on behalf of uh, people in need in the world. Yeah. And uh, so they don't 
they don't have a church that you come to. They just go out into the world where the, the real church is, the working church is. And so this man, John Skinner, who runs this new monasticism thing in the, in the United Kingdom, I think he's in, in England right now, um, very similar to uh, Dario's notion of religion without religion. I mean, it's man. got inter- inter- interesting overlaps. Wow. You, you might want to talk to John Skinner. Sometime. Yeah, I think, I think yeah. we're I think we're going to have to connect with him. One last thing, and I want to pass it off to John here. I want to finish up our little uh, intro to your version of deconstruction here. One of the things that first struck me is one of the things John and I try to do on this podcast for people that are unfamiliar with this terminology is people get really nervous when they hear deconstruction because they're like, oh no, they're you know just doing what those young people, those young hip postmoderns do, and they're just ripping everything apart and being cynical about everything and tearing it all down. And so we always try to balance that out by talking about reconstruction. But it seems to me like when you talk about deconstruction, you are assuming an affirmative. And I, you know, you've even said deconstruction is love. And I wonder if you could just talk about that for uh, a second and explain that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, because I think that when you, when particularly when Derrida introduced the notion of the undeconstructible, he's talking about something which is very deeply planted in our hearts, in our desire, and therefore in our love. So we have, uh, uh, you know, it seems to be completely fair to speak of our love of the democracy to come or the justice to come or of some religion to come that would belong to our desire to our deepest desire to a desire beyond desire for something uh, which for which we lack a vocabulary man um and so, yeah, he said it. I didn't. I just quoted him. He said, <laughs> "Deconstruction is love." I, I would go so far as to say, "Deconstruction is love." He said, um, "It's a love of the undeconstructible, a love of the impossible." It's a. He at once uses the expression "desire beyond desire." You know, you know this Greek word "eros." Can be trans. We we some we we sometimes translate it as erotic love, but it just it means desire. It means it's something we 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 our most heartfelt desire. Um. So he one time used the expression "desire beyond desire." Yeah, which I thought I liked a lot because I thought, well, we have our day-to-day desires, the desire to do our job or to earn a living or to to do, you know, the various daily things we have to do. But then there's a desire we have for something beyond those desires. Yeah. A desire for something that uh, we would be quite uh, unable to name or put yeah. our finger on. Yeah. Something someone said to us, sort of looked us in the eye and sat us down, looked us in the eye and had this kind of spiritual authority and just sort of looked us right in the eye and said, what do you want? What do you desire? Man. And at that point, he said, I don't know. <laughs> Some, something. I don't know I don't how know to what. express it. 
man. So, so it, you and know, you don't have expressions. You don't do, and you don't know. You know, you really don't. It's, no, it's something. And I think it's that open-ended structure of desire, that real, genuine, not non-knowing, that keeps the future open. That is great. You know, people who know what they want are dangerous. It's people who uh, recognize. Uh, the open-endedness of the future and their, their, the fragility of their own ability to uh, say what they want. Uh, it, that, that's the, sort of the genuinely human condition. That's the, the finite, fragile human condition. There's that sound A Sure, I know a hope from a So for for those people that you know are listening in and they're uh, maybe maybe just starting to to get into this kind of idea and they look at that term deconstruction and see it as a purely negative term and John and I are constantly trying to say no no there's reconstruction too but how do you how do you respond to that that kind of a view Well in a way practically everything I've written is in one way or another trying to respond to that criticism Right and um yeah, Derrida was too. He, he, I think, at a certain point in his life, he realized that he was starting to sound like this anything goes relativist. So I, I think that had a lot to do with um, his introduction of the word undeconstructable. He, he introduced it. He used it for the first time uh, in a, a talk that he gave to lawyers. At, uh, in a law school in New York City, in which he uh, was asked to address the question of the relationship between justice and the law. And so I usually use that uh, talk as a good way to answer that, the question that you, you're raising. And that is the distinction he made between the law, which he said is deconstructible, Laws are written, laws are repealed, they're reformed, they're revised, or sometimes they're just completely struck down. Um, So laws are deconstructible. But justice, and this is the way he put it, he says, justice in itself, if such a thing exists, and of course it does not, uh, is not deconstructible. So when you make a distinction between justice and the law, you never want to repeal justice, right? Right, right. You, you want to repeal the law. And you, you appeal to justice to repeal the law. So the law is always deconstructible, but the justice in itself is not. And you say, well, then what is justice? And then he says, well, uh, I don't know. It depends. <laughs> it's... Uh, in, in one situation, it's this, and in another situation, it's that. And if you try to make the rule for one situation, if you try to make justice into the into a rule, 
based upon one situation, well, then it won't apply to the other situation. Because the wow. other situation is always singular. Just the way each individual person is singular, or, or indeed each individual snowflake is singular. And science will tell us that each individual thing is, has a kind of singularity about it. And justice is that. It's this thing that settles into the singularity of the situation, which uh, doesn't mean it's arbitrary. It just means it's difficult. You know, it requires judgment and a sense of... Uh, a sense for dis- difference, a respect for difference. I mean, whenever anybody is screwed by the law, they always say, they always have exactly the same response. The, 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 the court says this is the law, and the person who's getting screwed by it says, but my case is different. <laughs> right? And, and, right? And that's true. That's true. That's why justice in itself, you could never, the most you could say is that justice occurs as a spark, as a moment in a singular situation, and then everything changes. And so you can't make a rule out of the singularity of that situation. It's uh, just as hovers over those situations and settles into them in singular ways, whereas the laws are, are rigid and universal. Um, and yeah. so you try to make the laws as flexible as possible, but you can only do so much with laws. Wow. Um, and justice is always uh, coming. So um, w- with the type of viewers, or listeners rather, not viewers, but uh, listeners that we have on, on our show, a lot of them are going through kind of this, uh, what we would call kind of a deconstruction or kind of a uh, a process of, of removing or throwing away just aspects to their faith or their religion that just either don't work anymore, uh, don't, you know, don't apply anymore. Um, and, and I've noticed that, uh, that Derrida is, has, has been quoted as saying that this idea of not knowing or unknowing is not a weakness. And I know you've also mentioned in your writings that this idea of not knowing does not defeat your sense of religion or prayer. Um, but I know that a lot of the critics out there are going to say, at what point in uh, this kind of stripping away process um, do you get to the point where it's no longer able to be called religion or Christianity? Um, at what point do you know that you've, you've just stripped away too much? Um, in general, I would say the problem is not stripping away too much. The problem is having too much built in, which which you're not willing to strip away. You know, the problem, the problem of violence is not usually the problem is not the result of of relativism. You know, the the great the great sources of you know nobody ever accused Hitler of being a a relativist. Nobody ever accused (laughs) Stalin of being a relativist. Nobody ever accused the the church when it burned heretics of being a relativist. Um, so I think in general, the problem is that that kind of question is displaced. It's not, it's usually not relativism causes trouble. It's usually authoritarianism. Um, and, um, it's authoritarianism that produces violence. I would say the point at which you've allowed your process of questioning to become destructive is the point at which it leads to violence. You know, I think that's what, what we're 
what we're trying to avoid is violence. Now, normally violence is a result of authoritarianism, but it could be the result of an absolute, absolutely libertine, anomic, you know, antinomian refusal to listen to anybody or anything and to, and to just simply uh, ride roughshod over uh, others. Uh, and then your process of questioning has become violent. Um, wow. But normally, you know, normally that's, that, that would be a kind of extreme libertarian violence. Um, normally violence is, is the issue of authoritarianism, not relativism, in yeah. my experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I'm picking up on in what you're saying, or maybe my imagination is taking it in, in another direction, is in my experience as a, a pastor and now a podcaster and just somebody that likes to talk about this kind of stuff, it seems to me that the nervousness that people have and that I've even experienced myself when it comes to this deconstruction process is we have fallen in love and started worshiping the construct and That's not and, and so and so we're, we're kind of like oh you know how much can I change before my my god or my tradition or my whatever it is isn't there anymore and that in in what you're saying it sounds like that's almost nonsense because you're saying that the God or, you know, the truth or what you call like the event or the impossible is always beyond the construct. So you could take the construct completely apart and you haven't done anything but just make a whole lot more room. Yeah. Yeah, in, in religion, you, you, call that, you call that idolatry. You know, when you, when you allow the, that construction to freeze over or to calcify uh, and then you cling to that, and you say if you you accuse others who depart from it, who separate themselves from that, which is what the word heresy literally means, you accuse them of uh, uh, you know heresy or, or of uh, the, the denial of God. When in fact it's the it's the clinging to certitude and and the rigidifying of constructions, which is the real idolatry. Man, yeah, and then you see that in you see that in particular in uh, the modern church in both the it's it, 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 you can sort of pick your flavor, you know you can it either comes in the form of Protestant fundamentalism which make makes the Bible into an idol, or in Catholicism where you make the institution into an idol and then you have an exactly parallel. Uh, notion of people or institutional infallibility. So you got biblical inerrantism and papal infallibility. You just you know, pick pick your idol. You know, pick 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 your poison. <laughs> Man. And but but they're very similar constructions. And in both cases, what you've done is you've refused to allow uh, the movement of Christianity, or whatever you're talking about, democracy or art or whatever it is, you you refuse to allow it its movement. You you refuse to allow it to remain open to the future, and you freeze it. It becomes like a frozen waterfall, you know, a freeze frame, a pause in a video stream, and it's all of a sudden it's become still. And you say that's the absolute unchanging essence. <laughs> Well, it's not. It's just the freeze frame. The, 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 the living things don't have an essence. They have a history. They have wow. A story. They, were, 
you say, what's the essence of Christianity? The answer is, I don't know. It's not over yet. You know? When, oh, man. When it's all over, I'll tell you what it will have been. <laughs> it's like oh, a dead goodness. language, you know, where you really could make up a dictionary once and for all. You'd have the complete, total dictionary of the dead language because there's nobody around who tomorrow morning is going to get up and create a new metaphor and change wow. the language. Wow. It's it's over. So, well, so then you can have an inventory of all the possible things that it, this will in the language. But insofar as the language is alive, you're constantly revising it. You just have the constant new editions of the dictionary because living speakers keep changing the language. And in, in, in See, there's that word inventing. See, they're, they're exposing the language to the event. And they become inventive speakers, which means they, uh, they, they, they don't let any particular state of the language uh, become normative. They don't let it freeze over. They don't let it calcify because it's a living language. I mean, even if they, they try to do it, that won't happen. You know, the, 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 the future changes, time changes under our feet, whether we like it or not. And so even when people say that they're sticking to the absolute original truth, they're not. They're not. The times have changed, words have changed, everything is changing, even though people, it's like they're standing on the earth and they're denying that it's moving. You know? <laughs> it, it doesn't appear to be moving, but, you know, trust me, it's moving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's the way conservatives are, I think, about traditions. You know, they think they're... They're conserving, but by clinging to the past, they conserve it. Well, they don't. It's actually a way to strangle it. Oh my goodness, man! Well, before we get into your to your latest work, because we definitely want to promote that to our listeners, um, one of the ideas I think that you've you've discussed in your previous work that I think is extremely applicable uh, given today's political climate, um, you know, the, just the violence that we see around the world currently, is your idea of uh, the weakness of God and uh, weak theology and what you mean by that. So I was just hoping that for a moment you could unpack what you mean by weakness because it's, it's definitely not in the sense that, that we think of weakness. No, it's, it's the paradoxical weakness described by Paul in First Corinthians one, um, which is the weakness of God. It's a, I mean, the, the expression "the weakness of God" is not mine. I did not make that up. It's the same. Same Paul beat me to it. And, <laughs> um, he he says he's talking to the Corinthians, and he says, and he says, "Look, you you people are not well born. You're not all that well educated. You're not you're not well off." <laughs> you know, I mean, he's, he's He's being very frank with them, and uh, he says um, he describes them as the uh, tabeantai, you know, the nothings and nobodies of the world. And he says God has chosen the nothings and the nobodies of the world to put to shame those who the, the powers that be, you know, the, 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 the strong and the powerful. So he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. The weakness of God is stronger, more powerful than the strength, than human strength. So my, that's my point of departure. Only I go a little bit farther than St. Paul. I mean, this my my on my analysis, 
where that finally gets you. I mean, I think when you look at the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, you see what Paul got up his sleeve. You know, he's, a, he's an apocalyptic thinker, and he thinks in the next chapter that all these people who aren't listening to him in the first chapter are going to be really sorry. They will <laughs> rue the day they didn't listen to him because God is coming. <laughs> they're all they're all going to get their comeuppance, you know, and the goats will be separated from the sheep, and they, uh, there'll be rewards for those who listen to him, and there will be punishment for those who didn't. And so at that point, I think, Paul is uh, revealing that he's got a, an idea of, of divine omnipotence and, or d- divine power, which is harsh. Uh, now, so I go somewhat farther with Paul than Paul by saying he should have stopped uh, when he was ahead in chapter one and uh, spared us that apocalyptic uh, conclusion in chapter two. Wow, and uh, I think that what because what Paul's saying is, well, look, if you stand with God, you're going to win. God, God's on your side, and you're going to win. You know, you may not win now, but you'll win tomorrow, and, the, and, and your enemies will be sorry. Well, you know, I, I think that's a theory of uh, retribution and of uh, resentment. Um, I think that the weakness of God is that. You know, uh, like forgiveness. Forgiveness uh, or or loving your enemies uh, um, or making, offering hospitality when it might be just a little risky to be offering hospitality. Yeah. Um, All those are cases of the foolishness of God. And there's no guarantee that you're going to win. And God is not the sort of being who comes in and makes sure you win. You know, God's, uh, God, God, I don't think God is a, that the name of God is the name of a super being or a superhero who comes in in the final scene and make sure that God's friends win. I don't think theology is about winning. I think that the the name of God is disclosed in the forgiveness, in the love of enemies, in the hospitality, period. Yeah. Without the the economy of reward and punishment. Um, Because, for one thing... I mean, apart from what I just said, is I think that it's a theory of resentment and retribution. But 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 just sort of look at the facts, you know. Um, God, the, the, as one theologian put it, a biblical theologian put it, the history of God's intervening on behalf of the just and punishing the unjust is so bad that you have to wonder why the theologians keep bringing it up. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I think that, I think that's really true. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the good the way the way things work is that the evil prosper, and the good are persecuted for being yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the history of God coming in and intervening and straightening all that out is not wonderful. Um, 
So I think that actually the name of God is not the name of a divine superhero. Hmm. It's the name of, uh, what, it's what Paul says in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, not the second. Yeah. And that's uh, what I worked out in a book called The Weakness of God. I just love the quote that you have in there, too, where you, you say, by refusing to trade strong force for strong force, the weakness of forgiveness can break the deadly cycle for physical retaliation. Man. I think that resonates uh, so much with me, you know, based on, a, you know, just what we're seeing in today's media and the news. Um, I just... I just want to point out. I, oh, I just the quote. political climate that we're in. I mean, yeah. let's not beat around the bush here. Like, this isn't a, a you know a podcast that leans one way or another politically. I don't even know how you could anymore. Right. But I mean, this is absent. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the current <laughs> political climate. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, I hope we're out of time, and, and I don't have to talk about that because. <laughs> No, it's you too do depressing. You do exactly. not. It is we. You know, we don't mind getting a little sad on this podcast because you know philosophers are good at being sad, but we're not going to go that sad. Right. That, <laughs> that is good. too. That is too sad. Uh, before we get into your book, uh, Jack, I just had one more question. I'm th- I'm trying to think like uh, my old. Uh, super conservative Bible worshiping self from way back in the day, and what kind of I always like to think about how my you know eighteen year old self would critique my thirty five year old self, and right. if my eighteen year old self was here listening to this conversation, or if my you know my parents fifteen twenty years ago were listening to this conversation, they would say, "Well, hang on a second. You know, Paul was very clear in Galatians when he said, if anyone comes and starts to preach a gospel other than exactly what I said here, you know, let them be anathema, you know, cursed, you know, forever. And I think that people use that as like a stick to, to you know, keep idea, new ideas from forming, to keep people in line. You know, it's like, here's my approved message. And that's exactly what Paul said. And it's exactly what Jesus said. And it's exactly what God said. And it's like, again, they're, they're giving you this, uh, they're giving you the, the not the ideal, uh, but as, as you like to call it, maybe the impossible or the event, or they're they're giving you the the truth that the beliefs cannot contain, and they're saying, "I have it here. It is." Do you have Wait. kind? Uh, you've been sort of responding to that a little bit throughout the whole podcast, but I wonder, has anybody ever said that to you? And how do you respond to something like that? Oh God, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, I've over the years been invited to conservative places and. You know, and I've gotten an earful. And then nowadays, <laughs> you get, you know, you're exposed because people can just email you or, or get on your Facebook page and say things. <laughs> um, yeah, sure, all the time I get that. Um, but um, you know, there's it's a good case of idolatry, you know, of, of, in this case, biblical idolatry, just trying to take a word, uh, a sentence. Uh, and, and use it as you said, use it as a stick. Yeah, beat be, be your plowshare into a sword and, and mm. turn it into a stick to, to whip somebody with. Yeah, um, wow. Yeah, I mean, if you this, the, the scriptures are full of a lot of things. Uh, for one thing, Paul was uh, got kicked out of just about every place he visited uh, eventually because he raised so much trouble, caused so much trouble, and he wasn't being kicked out by Romans or Greeks. He was being kicked out by the Jews. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Listening to him, and um, his own mission, I think, historically, he was a bit of a failure. 
And what happened was he caught a wave, you know, he caught a break. What happened, I think, is that the, the temple in Jerusalem was uh, destroyed, and uh, the Aramaic-speaking Jewish followers of Jesus were scattered or killed. And all that was left were the Gentile-speaking followers, and all they had to go on, since they were second and third generation by then, uh, they had never laid eyes on Jesus, so all they had to go on were the letters of Paul. Right. And the letters of Paul, which were just letters, became scripture. Yeah. So Paul's, uh, you know, he fought with everybody, and uh, he he happened to win, I think, historically. But um, he didn't win in his own lifetime, and it was only because he had the ability to write, which brings you back to Derrida on the, the way in which traditions are founded upon writing and the power of writing. Man. You know, because they can be passed on from generation to generation independent of the original context. And um, they, which is why they demand interpretation, which is why somebody who tries to use them as a stick will d- doesn't understand the nature of a written text. So then you get into... Um, so <clears throat> Some of the more technical sides of Derrida's work, his early work, when he was talking about the uh, the nature of a written text. Mm. And what we know about a written text is that it is, in principle, recontextualizable. It has yes. a context when it's written, but because it's written, it can survive the context. Right. Context can change, and therefore the text can be recontextualized. And that keeps on going. Yeah. And then, and then you form a tradition when you have a string of recontextualizations that hang together around an, an individual text. Yeah. But there's nothing to say that any one version of that text is normative. Man. Well, we could go. If it's a text, if it's a text, it's recontextualizable. Yeah, yeah, we just recontextualize and recontextualize. So we're doing what Derrida is essentially saying, we're just not almost admitting it. In a, in a lot of ways, it's like wait, we're doing it all the time because we can never get back to the the totally pure essence, like you say, and freeze the waterfall. Yeah. So we're we're constantly having to talk about it again in a new context and talk about it again in a new context and right. yeah yeah it just goes on and, and on. Words are powerful enough; you can do that with them. If they're not, they just die off as soon as the context changes. They die off. They're so time bound wow. that they have no use. They have their survival value after the context changes. But if somebody says something uh, striking, uh, then this can survive the context. And we get, it, it admits of being recontextualized. And that's when you get the tradition. Man, we could go all day. I, I would love to get a cup of coffee with you that would last <laughs> three, <laughs> yeah. three days. A, a, just a giant <laughs> cup of coffee. And just continue to ask. I wish I could have been one of your students, Jack. It, it, this has been such a, a wonderful conversation. I, I want to be respectful of your time, but really what we want is 
to for this podcast and this episode, this conversation to just be an appetizer to get people out there and and get your books. The one that I'm going to recommend for people that um, have no experience with your work at all is uh, the book by Baker Academic, which I thought was very accessible. You use a lot of uh, popular ideas, you know, TV shows like The Wire and Lost and some other concepts that really make your ideas very very accessible. And that's called uh, What Would Jesus Deconstruct? But your new book. Um, your newest book is called Hoping Against Hope. Yeah, there's a, there's two new books out. They both came out uh, around the same time. One is called Hoping Against Hope, and that has the advantage of being sort of autobiographical. Yeah, it, uh, I, I sort of tell my story about growing up in pre-Vatican II Catholicism, and and I weave the sorts of things we're talking about together. Yeah, with uh, my autobiography, and so it's, a, it's part spiritual memoir and then part sort of theological reflection. Uh, the other one's called "The Folly of God," and mm. that's uh, you know that's we, we didn't say foolishness of God because there's already a book out there called "Foolishness of God," but again, <laughs> it's, it's taken from First Corinthians one. Uh, where the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Yeah. And uh, I pursue what we've just been saying uh, in terms of the dynamic of uh, wisdom and foolishness. And if you happen to know anything about Paul Tillich, uh, that book tries to bring together what Derrida talks about under the name of the unconditional. He calls the undeconstructible the unconditional. Mm. Uh with what um, Tillich calls the unconditional, namely a matter of ultimate concern. Wow. So uh, you've got uh, a way to bring Tillich and Derrida together, and I think it's fertile to bring them together. Just the way we were saying before, that there are interesting overlaps between Derrida and Bonhoeffer. I think there's also interesting overlaps between Derrida and Tillich. So the folly of God does that. So if any of your readers know anything about Tillich, that would be a handle for them in that, in that, uh, for that book. The great thing about our audience, Jack, is um, people are hungry and they, they want to hear new ideas. And, and the great thing about your work and uh, other people like you that do these kinds of work is you take these people that we would otherwise find inaccessible and you bring them down to a level, almost like C.S. Lewis used to do. He, you know, he would take these guys that, you know, nobody's going to read Rudolph Otto. I'm not going to read Rudolph Otto. But, but Lewis did, and he would read all these other medievals and bring their ideas together in a way that sounds like you're talking with somebody at a pub. And I, I just think that uh, what you do is so valuable. And uh, for people that don't want to crack open Jacques Derrida and maybe don't want to get the courage to be by Tillich, we hope you do. But I also hope you get Jack Caputo's work um, hope against hope, and and read that, and really specifically your concept about God insisting instead of existing, I think is very very interesting. I wish we could get into that a little bit, but um, you've just got so much out there, and we just so appreciate the work that you've done to make space for spiritual claustrophobics like like us. That's what we call ourselves a lot of times. <laughs> well, you don't sound very claustrophobic to me, but you you. Uh... We we all have to uh, keep keep ourselves uh, off balance, you know, and kind of like to say o- optimal equilibrium, so that we're 
we keep ourselves open, exposed, and ready ready for something that we weren't ready for. Just as a by way of closing, I wonder if you could offer some advice and and maybe speak to one of the ways we close all our episodes is it, we always assume that there are people listening here that are undergoing a crisis of faith and maybe they're you're fun they're more fundamentalist in nature and experiencing that kind of trauma. And then there's also people on the opposite side that are coming, you know, instead of from Tillich's perspective, maybe more from Derrida's perspective, and they are, you know, very skeptical but spiritually curious. So we have these, this spectrum of the fundamentalist all the way to the more science-minded atheist. And I wonder if you could just, in closing, kind of address them both uh, with some word, words of well, wisdom. Well, yeah, the way to think about that, I think, is um, understand the way that faith and doubt Certainty and uncertainty interweave with each other and make each other possible. Um, it's only when things are dubious and clouded uh, that you need to have faith. Otherwise, your faith is, is dogmatic. And by the same token, the only reason you would be disturbed about your uncertainty and your doubt is that you're looking for something and your heart is restless, as St. Augustine says. And there's something you're, you want and you feel the pain. It's like feeling pain. That's a good thing because it means that the, it's the body signaling you that there's something wrong. Well, doubt and uncertainty are a, a little bit like that. They're 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 signs of life, of uh, desire, of uh, a love of something I know not what. And um, there's there's signs that you're searching. So, for to 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 the dubious, congratulations on your doubt. You know, it means you're in, you're looking for something. Uh, doubt is not the same as despair. Despair is the more serious problem. But if you've got if you're riddled with doubts and it keeps you up at night, you're on the right track. You know, you're doing fine. It's when you stop when you stop worrying about your doubts and you just lose all. You become utterly indifferent to them. That you're in trouble. And on the other end, you, if you're if you're too, if you're absolutely sure you're right, then you know you're wrong. You know you know you 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 let something out. You're you're doing something wrong. Wow! A genuine faith, I think, is struggling. You're saved. Uh, this, this is a sort of paraphrase of Paul Tillich, but it's not not bad. You're saved by doubt, not by faith. And wow! You're, you're saved by the faith that's in doubt. And the doubt that's in faith. You know? So both both sides uh, uh, should keep this, the same thing in mind: that faith and doubt interweave. Certainty, knowledge, and non-knowledge interweave. You see that in science. Whenever uh, the scientists discover something new, they find they've got a dozen new problems they didn't know they had before. Oh man! So the two work together, and they. To keep things in motion, everything's deconstructible. You know, it's always being reformed, rethought, refined. It's always un—it's a little bit stable, but then again, it's a little bit unstable. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, wow. have you ever dropped the mic before? Because I think you should drop the mic <laughs> yeah. right now. <laughs> Holy drop, cow! Drop the mic. Yeah, there's a phrase that young people use when you say something when nothing more needs to be said. And you just you just drop the mic and walk off stage. (laughs) (laughs) Never heard that before. Well, that'll be the only time we've ever taught you something. So. (laughs) 
Um, uh, I, I can see no better way to uh, to to end our time together. So, uh, very quickly, what what is the best way for folks to stay on top of of the latest uh, that you're that you're working on? Uh, well, you know, if you, I have a, a, a an author uh, Facebook page that will keep people let people know what I'm up to. It's, it's called John D. Caputo Dash Week Theology, and uh, that. That you know, you know, I announce my lectures and what I'm doing next uh, on, on there. Perfect. So yeah. That'll keep them uh, up to date. And uh, right now, I'm working on a book on hermeneutics. I've, I've been working on hermeneutics one way or another all my life. That's a theory of interpretation. And I'm working on a book uh, on interpretation right now called "The Interpretive Imperative." Uh, it's the subtitle is so uh, I think the notion of postmodern hermeneutics, something like that. Wow. But anyway, I have a, a Facebook page called if you just do weak the look up weak theology, you'll you'll find me and then that will tell you what I'm what I've been doing and what I am doing next. And we will we will definitely put that uh, that link on our show notes as well as uh, the best places uh, to to go out and, and get some of your books. Um, we just cannot thank you enough for the time that you spent with us and just uh, uh, you know uh, sharing sharing some of your thoughts with us. I've enjoyed it, and we'll have to do it again sometime. Oh, uh, we, we will, will definitely definitely take you up on that offer. <laughs> okay. Well, Jack, Thanks. thank you very 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 much. You're quite welcome. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye bye. Bye-bye. Talking over tape delay You're following me anyway Through a lack of conversation Living through a telephone Shame I always feel alone in a fog of all the information In hearts I've met So never seen Dude, I have one question for you and it's are we blessed by the sovereign hand of the Lord? <laughs> I mean, I think we must be at this point. That interview was we need we need to make this outro very very short because you know what I want everybody to do right now go buy his books go buy his books and listen to that freaking interview all over again because that's what I'm going to do yeah so if you're listening to this we're not going to overcomplicate it nope deconstruction is love it's an affirmative weak theology god weak theology how cool ah oh. I, that's the first thing I picked up on when I started reading up on his material. And I was like, what a fascinating concept. Man. So we got to get him back. Because oh. as as versed as he is in the thought of Jacques Derrida, which informs a lot of what we're doing here. Yeah. Another theologian that we love that overlaps so much with Jacques Derrida is Paul Tillich. Yeah. And his last book, you know, uh, Hope Against Hope, yeah. is... And the folly of God, I think, all have to do with Tillich. Mm -hmm. And my brain is mush right now because I'm just so enthusiastic about what just happened. <laughs> wow. Just, dude. Yeah. Man, I just, okay. So, John and I, we're not going to make a big thing out of this. Listen to the interview again. Mm -hmm. That 
was such a treat, man. This is one of those things where it's like, we're going to be like talking to our kids someday and be like, oh yeah, that time we like talked to Jack Caputo for an hour or two. Like, yeah, that time. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Guys, like, I don't, I don't even know. I, I hope the people listening at home enjoy um, it, kind of the variety of guests that, that we have coming on the show at this point. Because, you know, at, at the beginning, like, we've said this before. We didn't really know what we were doing entirely. We were just happy and lucky and fortunate to get, you know, some of the guests that we got on originally. And now we've, we've uh, kind of slowed it down a little bit and, and kind of been more intentional about, you know, who we have on when. And we're, we're trying to play with the calendar and everything. And so I, I just hope that you guys enjoy as much as we've been enjoying mm. bringing these interviews to you. Um, just, you know, these philosoph- uh, philosophers we're bringing on and, and the scientists and, and the, uh, the bloggers and the authors and the theologians. You know what I um, love about this so much? Do you know how like a really good radio station, not that you and I are a really good radio station. <laughs> we'd be a terrible one. some overlap in this <laughs> analogy. Like if you're listening to a great radio station or even like a great Pandora station or like whatever, mm-hmm. you're going to kind of get a taste of what you already know you like. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to get a whole bunch of things that you hadn't heard of before that you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know how much I like this. Yeah. That's how I feel about a lot of the people we get on. And, and, and Jack Caputo, I'd say, is one of my crown jewels of like a year ago, I had no idea who this guy was. Yeah. And now I'm devouring his work. I'm finished with like my second book. By the way, you know I love Kierkegaard. Yeah. He has got an amazing book on how to read Kierkegaard. So if you're out there and you've always kind of wanted to like you know, be at a party, a cocktail party, and everybody's mm-hmm. having drinks, and you want to spit some Kierkegaard, because, you know, like you do. Yeah, yeah. Like you do. Yeah. Jack Caputo can help you with that. Mm. Get his book, How to Read Kierkegaard. I cracked it open. It's in my bathroom right now. Every time, you know, I'm in the bathroom, <laughs> spend some time. Everybody else has got random Jack- trivia. <laughs> You've got or Jack- Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah. <laughs> I've got Jack Caputo on how to read Kierkegaard. Of course you do. Let me tell you something, though. Like a good radio station, we are bringing people, Catherine Hayhoe, mm-hmm. Jack Caputo. I mean, there's some people that have tweeted at us, like, I didn't know who Science Mike was before this. I'm like, that's tragic for you. Yeah, that's unimaginable. Yeah, but like <laughs> so many people. Pete, Ro- Did I already say Pete Rollins? Not yet. Pete Rollins, I mean... That's what I love about what we're doing here. It's like yeah. people connect with this whole expansion, deconstruction, the more comes into what you already have and like makes room for itself. It ruptures, it deconstructs, but mm-hmm. it's always a part of reconstruction as well. Jack Caputo, man, everybody needs to go pick up, if you can pick up one book, What yeah. Would Jesus Deconstruct? Pick it up by mm. Baker Academic. It's a series that's edited by James K. A. Smith. It's absolutely fantastic. Check it out. Who's this sweet music we're listening to, though? Dude. You figured these, you found these people. Yeah. Um, this is a husband and wife duo. Um, Gosh, so and good. They're incredibly generous and nice. And uh, we reached out to them not that long ago. And they immediately got back to us within less than 24 hours. And they were like, absolutely use our music. So good. And, uh, you know, they, they, uh, you know, talked a little bit about, you know, their faith background, everything super, super generous though. They're called the well pennies. Mm. Um, if you haven't heard of them and you like a little acoustic folk, um, mixed with like, you know, just a tiny taste of civil wars meets like shovels and rope. meets like, you know, just your folky Americana. I don't know if you guys are all familiar with um, Mandolin Orange mm. or so much good music out there. We, 
we're doing this all for you guys. Yeah. We love you guys. So not only do you get uh, hopefully some some interviews with some people that maybe you didn't know before. Nuggets. Maybe present you know some information that you've never heard before. Nuggets. But we're trying to, we've been trying to up our music game. And so we were bringing you hopefully artists that maybe you haven't heard of before. Yeah. Some, some you will have heard of, some of uh, the bands, that, you know, most of them probably you may not have heard of. And uh, we, that's why we've been putting them, uh, you know, all their information in our show notes. So if you guys like the music that we're playing on here, check them out. Please check them out. Gosh. Go buy their music. Um, the Well Penny is just another great example of just, amazing. Um, you know, and they both sing lead vocals, both the husband and the wife. They both have killer voices. Dude, and, I bet uh, most of the people incredible. listening to this have never heard of the Well Pennies, which mm-hmm. is tragic. Tragic. And have never heard of Jack Caputo. And he dropped the mic on this episode. Dude, go get his book. And he li- dropped the mic. Listen to the Well Pennies while you're reading it. Hashtag Jack Caputo drops the mic. Yes. That's this episode. <laughs> I like it. Man, we love you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting us do this. Thank you for letting us be raw and unprofessional mm-hmm. and having a blast and doing this deconstruction thing with you. We love you tons. Love, love, love. For now... We are your hosts. I am John Williamson. And I am Adam Narlock. Keep deconstructing, everyone. Maybe it could amaze me If I were to step outside my door And when, cause it would surely happen Discovering all that land and sea And no one knows but me
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.